Let's flip our bulletins back over. And we are in week number two of a sermon series at all three of our, our, three of our campuses uh, called All I Want. And, and my, my beginning statement to you last week was maybe and what if and suppose everything that you search for every Christmas is really only found in one thing. And that one thing is actually searching for you. What if it's not to be found in another present, in another trip, in another family photo? It's not to be found in another memory. It's not to be found in, in going and spending money on things that you don't need to impress people that you, you don't know. But it's actually found in the person, and his name is Jesus, and he's actually do the, doing the looking. What if he's actually the one that's, that's searching for you? And so last week we read a passage in the book of Isaiah, uh, ver- chapter 9, verse number 6 written hundreds of years before Jesus would ever come. It's a prophetic book. And the Bible says in verse number six, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. In other words, Christmas is about God coming to us. That's the message of Christmas. You'll hear a lot about religion, us getting to God, us getting right in God's eyes, us doing right, us talking right. A lot of times it's about us, but the truth is, is Christmas is about God coming to you and to me, and then it says, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called. I love that. I love that phrase, and if you read it fast, you'll miss it, but I love it because we live in a world of self-proclaimed legends, right? I had a guy in my school when I was in, in college, and he, his name was Mark. Uh, he did a lot, of, a lot of drugs. Before he got to school, he went to a program called Teen Challenge, and so he showed up to school as a 25-year-old freshman. Uh, he was a character. I'm not sure if it was the drugs or it was just God-given ability, but he was a, he was a different dude, and, and so he used to rap, and, and I, he was kind of a legend in his own mind. One of my best friends, some of my most entertaining moments in my life were spent with Mark, uh, that, 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 that rapping and, and dancing, and, and, and he, he always was kind of coming up with, with nicknames for himself, and in, in the second, or the first year of college, I quickly found out that he was a self-proclaimed spoiler when it came to football, even though he had never played football his entire life, but in spring practices, he would go on to try out for the football team at a college university. We weren't very good, but it was still, those dudes were big. And he would go out as a 25-year-old freshman uh, and call himself the spoiler. He had a, a, a homemade purple do-rag that he tied with his class ring in the back. Uh, if you know anything about football, his first day of practice, he went out and practiced with his, his pads on top of his practice jersey instead of the other way around. And he went out talking about how he was the spoiler and all this stuff. He was a self-proclaimed legend. If you're on social media, you've probably come up with a couple different names that, where you kind of have given them to yourselves. Or maybe you've had that friend that's like, you know, don't call me Steve anymore. You just call me, you know, legend. Or you can just call me dumb man. Or you can call me whatever you want to call me. When I was in college, my self-proclaimed name, obviously because it fit, it was, was Big Dufresne. And so I made everybody call me Big Dufresne, obviously because I'm so big and tall and, and, and manly. And so we all are kind of legends in our own, in our own world. But I love this because Jesus isn't here yet. And he's not saying he's going to come and this is what he's going to call himself. He's going to come on the scene. He's going to be a big deal. He's going to set himself up in a throne somewhere. He's going to, he, he, listen, he's going to name himself Jesus. But really what he's going to name himself is the Savior, D-A-S-A-V-I-O-R, the Savior, because I'm the truth. And you all are going to call me that. Like, that's just where I'm going to land. He says, no, here's how people are going to refer to him. He's going to come. Here's how good he's going to be. And then he goes into these four names. He says, wonderful counselor. And we talked about this last week. God, he's a wonderful counselor. 
He creates a safe environment. He, he, he doesn't just give you advice. He becomes your answer. If you're struggling through something, the answer is always Jesus. He becomes the wonderful counselor. Next week, we're going to talk about the everlasting father. Some of you, that's going to be a life-changing message for. We're going to dive into the story of the prodigal son, and I'm going to show you attributes of this, this everlasting father. But, but the second word, he says, he says, he's going to be called the mighty God. The mighty God. And if I talk to you a little bit about this at all of our campuses, if I ask you what the first phrase when you think of Jesus is, or the first phrase when you think of, Jesus, uh, of Christians, because Christians and Jesus should be interchangeable. When you think of Jesus, you should think of Christians. When you think of Christians, you should think of Jesus. Typically, it doesn't happen. When you ask people uh, what they think of Christians, what's the first word that comes to their mind? It should be Jesus, but 75% of them say like judgmental and, and, and hypocritical and, and, and too political and all this other, this other stuff. But the truth is you, t- you should think of Jesus. And what I think has happened is people don't get close enough to Jesus to understand who he really is. Like when you don't get close to Jesus, you're going to come away with all these, these, these presumptions. When you misjudge him, you're going you're to fall short of him being a mighty God. Let me explain to you. Have you ever had a time where you've kind of just misjudged something and it's ended up bad? Like maybe it's been like a glass window that you thought was an opening, but it was really a glass window. A bunch of girls in here. You probably, you probably did that. I'm not, no, nobody's ever done that. Okay, it's just my wife. And so anyway, like you... I'm just playing. She's never done that. Maybe once. Like you hit that or maybe, maybe when you were a kid, you misjudged, you know, your own strength. You got in a fight with somebody bigger than you. He pummeled you. Or, or maybe you had an older sibling and you misjudged how fast they were and you instigated them and they may have caught you and beat you to the, the pole, pulp. And so, but when I was in, when I was a freshman, I, I played on the basketball team at this little university. I was, I, I, I wasn't very good, but I played on this basketball team. And and they had something called Midnight Madness. And I've told you this story before because it was such a, a, a step of misjudgment in my life. But, but I, I never dunked a basketball in my life. And so I know somebody just showed me a video of them dunking a basketball. I don't want to see your videos. I'm just talking about myself. I've never dunked a basketball in my life. Like I, if people ask me, could you dunk? I would have all sorts of excuses. My hands are too small. My skin's too light. My, my shoes don't have enough padding, you know. The, the air is not right in, the, in this gym. Like, there's all sorts of excuses. But I have never done it, ever, ever in practice, never, ever, ever. I would jump up, and I would lay the ball, and I would grab the rim. And when people weren't looking, they would say, what did you do? I would say, I dunked. You didn't see it because it would make the sound of me dunking. But I never have dunked in my life. And so here I am, a freshman, and, and, and I'm about to go out to something called Midnight Madness. Now, if you go to a big college, they did this in an arena. We did this in a little 300-seat uh, gymnasium. But basically what it was, you invite the whole school out. Uh, to kind of see the product that the basketball team was going to put on the court. They play music, rap music, they pump it, the cheerleaders are out there cheering, and they introduced the basketball team. And, and what, 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 the way our Midnight Madness worked is I invited everybody in my dorm to come because I wanted them to be there. And weeks leading up to it, all the, all the older people were saying, okay, everybody needs to try to dunk. And, and they, were, they were kind of building me up. You can dunk, you can do it. They've seen me jump. Obviously, it wasn't going to happen, but I'm pretty sure they were playing a mean trick on me, and they were saying, okay, you're going to run out, and you have to dunk. And so that night, we all lined up in the gym, in, in the locker room, and they began to announce our names. The music's playing, you know, the grits. I don't know if you know what the grits are, but the grits were, were my generation's Lecrae, and so they got the grits going, and they're playing this rap, and, and, and I'm the third person in line. And I'm not sure how I got to be the third person in line. I'm pretty sure everybody that was, was good and could jump was behind me. 
because they knew I was going to set them up to look good because I was going to look stupid. So they're in my ear. You can jump. You can do it. You're going to have all this adrenaline. Music's going to be pumping. All these girls are going to be out there. Everybody from your dorm, you invited them all to be there. You can do it. And so I'm, in the, I'm like getting pumped up. I'm, you know, I did my pumps. You don't know what those are. Google them. Pumped them up and stretching out and like all this stuff. First dude runs out, jumps up. Boom, dunks. Now, these were, these were taller guys. They, they, they were more athletic. They were better. And they dunked all the time. So he did one dunks. Next guy runs out and dunks. Third guy in line is me. They're like, go. And so I run out. They say my name, Steve Dufresne, shooting guard, freshman, all this stuff, bench warmer, whatever you wanted to say. I come running out. Slow motion, right? I'm a, I'm a, this, this, is, this is it. I'm like, I'm judging M equals momentum. C equals craftiness. MC squared equals my, my adrenaline that's pumping through my two legs right now. All this stuff. I have all these thoughts going in my head and I'm run out and I get all the way down the court and I'm counting my steps and I'm running and I go up and just get up to the rim. And about halfway up, I, I, I realize this is going to be bad. <laughs> this is a total miscalculation of, in my head of who I am. Forgetting, you know, how tall I am and how good I am. And I get up there and literally, I don't know if you've ever seen the Sprite commercial, but I, but I just hit, the, hit the, the, the rim like this with the ball and my, I just fell backwards in front of everybody. You know, I got up, tried to play it off. You know, it's the M, the momentum is wrong in the gym. My hands are too small. The ball was slippery because somebody put slippery stuff on. It wasn't my fault. But the truth was, is because of my misjudgment, I didn't even get close. And I think that happens for a lot of people. When I say mighty God, you're going, I don't know if he's a mighty God. And I would say you're misjudging him because you've never gotten close enough to him. And it's not that you've never gotten close enough to him. It's that you haven't ever allowed him to get close to you. And God is omnipresent, which means he wants to be close to you. He's everywhere. He's in every situation. He's in every circumstance. He's in every family problem. He is everywhere. He's in your job. He's in your home. He's everywhere. The the truth is you need to allow him to be close to you. And I think the closer that he gets to you, the more that you'll be coming away saying mighty God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to a story where we're going to land for the rest of today's sermon for the next 19 minutes and 58 seconds. That's what I got on my countdown. John chapter, John chapter four. If you have your smartphones, you could turn there. If not, it's right there in your bulletin. If you could see right now. But John chapter 4 is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. If you ask me, where, where do you prefer to preach? I like to preach the prodigal son. I like to preach the good Samaritan. And I like to preach the lady at the well, the woman at the well. I think it's such a profound story. Every time I read the woman at the well, I come away with something new. I've preached on her probably once a year for the last 10 years of my life. And every time, God takes me to something new, teaches me something different about this story. So this is what the Bible says. Now Jesus, in verse number one, learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Uh, They're jealous of Jesus because he's baptizing people. Criticism always comes from jealousy, just so you know. They're mad at Jesus uh, because of what he's doing. They're jealous of how God is using him, and they're criticizing him. And you're going to see these characters are in, his, in the entire part of the Gospels. Like, it's always Jesus, the woman at the well, and the Pharisees. Jesus, the man born blind, and the Pharisees. They're like a disease that you don't want. So what happens in churches that forget about the Gospel. So the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus. And now he says this, since they're jealous of Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. Samaria. Now, if you're just reading the story, if you're a novice at the Bible, if you're, you're not kind of in, you haven't studied, maybe you haven't ever heard this preach, this is significant right here. Here's why it's significant. Jesus was a Jewish man, and all of his disciples were Jewish young men. They were, they were teenagers. 
So Jesus was Jewish and all of his disciples were Jewish. And what you need to know about the culture is Jewish people didn't associate with Samaritan people. In fact, Samaria was full of hybrid Jewish people. They were, they were half Jews, half other race. And so a lot of times Jewish people would simply just kind of keep them away. They had different places to worship. They had different agendas. They had different ideas of what was all right with God. And the Jewish people at that time kind of had had a corner on, on who God was and what he accepted and it wasn't them. You always get in trouble when you have a them mentality. So what would happen in this time is if you had to go somewhere and Samaria was in between you and where you had to go, good Jewish people would go around it. So here's what you have to know about Jesus. People are ticked off at him. The church is ticked off at him. The Pharisees are ticked off at him. And he don't care. Because if he cared, he wouldn't go through Samaria. He would be a good Jewish rabbi and go around Samaria. So here he is with 13, or 12, 13 men total, 12 other disciples, and he says, hey, guys, we're going to Samaria. I mean, could you just imagine these Jewish boys have never been there before, teenagers, and they're going, Jesus is whack. He had to go through Samaria, the Bible says. I want you to remember that for future reference. Then it says this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. He was at a place that was dedicated to a man named Joseph. And if you've ever read your Bible, Joseph would be a man that I think would certainly say, my God is a mighty God. I think it's significant that this, this woman that we're going to read about would meet Jesus at the same plot that was designated to a man that met the power of God and saw God work in and through his life. The Bible says this, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? It's noon, it's hot, Jesus is sitting at a well. We're about to see something else. It says his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So it was just Jesus and this woman. I mean, could you imagine if we just stopped for a second, if I may, if I would kind of pull a little bit more out of the story. Jesus has brought these disciples to Samaria, and they kind of are out on the outskirts of town, and then he sends the disciples by themselves into this town. I mean, could you imagine? They're grumbling. Jesus is whack. He's sending us with these dirty Samaritan people. We don't share with them. We don't like them. What is Jesus doing? And meanwhile, Jesus is by himself, and here comes this, this lady, this woman. Goes on to say this, will you give me a drink? You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. If it's me and I'm kind of ad-libbing in the story, I'm thinking she's snapping at him. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What? I mean, you have to understand, it's the middle of the day. Nobody's there. Nobody goes there in the middle of the day because it's the hottest time of the day. Women go, by tradition, go in the morning in groups because that's what women do, gackling and gossiping and talking and doing each other's hair and talking about how they feed kids and all these other things and talking about how lazy and stupid their husbands are and all this other stuff they do. You shouldn't do that, by the way. And here's this woman by herself, and she's meeting a rabbi that's, that's not supposed to be in Samaria, and he's sitting on the well, and she's going, uh-uh instantly she's thinking this dude's trying to get with me i'm just telling you the bible is scandalous i know she's thinking that because of her response i'm a samaritan and you're a jew what are you doing here this is what jesus says how can you ask me for a drink she says jesus answered her if you knew the gift of god and who it is that asked you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water i mean not only does she think he's trying to hook up with her now he's throwing game her way that's what she thinks. I mean, that's a line. Here comes this woman. She has a pot on her head because that's just how well, I imagine that women carried the pots back then. I think that's what I've seen on National Geographic. And so she comes and Jesus is talking to her and then Jesus throws out this line. She's like kind of giving him attitude and he says, yo, girl, that's not, I have water that will never leave you thirsty. 
Some of you single men, you're like, I gotta write that, I gotta write that down. <laughs> I gotta lead with that. John 4, verse 10. Write it down. Jesus said it. I got something that will never leave you thirsty. So I think she's already kind of standoffish with him, and she goes into this whole conversation. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well's deep. Where are we going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us a well and drank from it himself, as also his sons and his, flock, his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks this water will never thirst again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well at 12 o'clock in the, hot, in the hottest hour. And then Jesus goes right to what he, Jesus does. You can call it what you may, but Jesus gets right down to business. And this is what he says to her. He says, okay, before we do this, why don't you go and get your husband and come back? She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. You have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband either. What you have said is quite true. I mean, Jesus blows this woman out of the water right here. She thinks this dude's trying to get with her and all this stuff, and then this Jesus basically says, hey, I got something for you that'll never leave you thirsty again. She says, give me some. He says, before we do that, we need to deal with why you're thirsty in the first place. And the reason you're thirsty is you keep trying to drink from the toilet. You've had five husbands. And what he means is you've had five different men. This is not culturally acceptable at that time. You've had five different men who you've given your body to and fallen in love with and moved in with and you've broken up with them. And now you're on your sixth one and he's not your husband as well. So go get him. I want to have a little counseling session because I'm the wonderful counselor. I'm going to give you something so you stop drinking from the toilet. And then she does what all all of us do when we get in this situation. She begins to talk about why she can't worship and and where is she supposed to worship and all this other stuff. And finally, Jesus kind of says, let's just stop talking about what we shouldn't be talking about. In the moment that his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked because they weren't stupid, what do you want or why are you talking with her? They're finally learning. Then the Bible says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The Bible goes on to say that the town comes back with her. And as the town's coming back, that Jesus begins to talk about this harvest that's great, but the workers are plentiful. In other words, he says, look at this amount of people that are coming. It's sad that more people aren't going to understand why they're on this earth. And the Bible says that they come and they meet Jesus. And many in the town, because of this woman's experience at the well, are changed and saved forever. Here's four things I know from this meeting. I think she I think she comes away saying this is a mighty God. I think the first thing that, that she comes away saying is this, is my God is for me. I want you to notice a phrase in there. If I could take you back to the very beginning. The phrase that said, Jesus had to go. I want you to think about that for a second. Is this by chance? Is this passage in there by chance? Was John just being detailed? Or was this supposed to be in the Bible so that we could see that God sets up specific moments in time that are outside of chance because he is for us? In the midst of the lowliest situation that this woman can be in. We know she's in a lowly situation because she's by herself. We know she's in a lowly situation because she's sneaking out of her town in the middle of the hottest part of the day, knowing that there's a chance, a high chance, that no one else is going to be there, and she's not going to have to face any disapproval. 
See, this woman has an issue. Her issue is she has been living for the approval of men, which ultimately has called disapproval for her town. And she lives under this heavy baggage of pain, and she has nothing to do with it, and she is isolated and alone from everybody else. You ever been there? Kind of sneak around hoping no one would ever see what you're going for. No one would ever understand what you're dealing with. No one would ever kind of be able to tell the pain that you have. And here's Jesus in the midst of her pain. And she's thinking, okay, what's this guy want? And quickly she realizes this ain't no normal guy. This might be the Messiah. And I think the very first thing she understands is I think Jesus set this whole thing up to meet me in my lowest moment to change my forever. God, God's for you. I think when you begin to understand that God's for you, there's two things that will happen in your life. And if, if you've never been here and you constantly struggle with this, you probably don't understand how much God is for you. You probably think and live with the approval mindset. And when you live with the approval mindset, you also have to deal with the disapproval heartache. Let me give you an example. If you grew up in a house where there was constant criticism and you never got that approval, you're typically a person who's very condemning. That's what happens in churches a lot. When the pastor of the church and the culture of the church is a critical culture, and we're criticizing kind of everybody out here, what ends up happening is you guys all leave this place and you become condemning Christians. Why? Because we're living for the approval of God, and he's approved us because of how good we are, and he disapproves these people because of how bad they are. Another thing that I think happens is, is if you live with hostility, you, you, you learn to fight. If you live with ridicule, you learn to be shy. You ever notice that? If you're constantly kind of disapproved because of your actions, you kind of fade back. Happens to Christians all the time. If every time you mess up, you expect ridicule from God, you will never come to God when you need him. Instead, you'll run away from him. But the truth is, is when you understand God is for you, you'll stop running from him and you'll run to him every time you mess up. Why? Because he doesn't love you because of who you, and who you are and what you've done and what you've brought to him and, and, and the mistakes that you made. He loves you because you're his. And I think this woman is understanding that God is, he's for me. I think on the flip side, when you begin to understand that, when you, when you, when, 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 child, when, when you live with tolerance, you, you begin to be patient. When you understand God is, is tolerant, not because he has to be, but because he's, he's chosen to be. When you live with encouragement, you begin to have confidence. When you understand that God is for you, not, not against you. It's not that he doesn't need to be. Some people are saying, I knew God wasn't judgmental. No, the truth is you've already been judged. By your sins, hell is waiting for you. That, that's the truth. Because of my sins, hell was knocking at the doorstep. I would be a product of my past, a product of my mistakes. The Bible says the debt that I have can never be paid because I can never stop sinning. So Jesus came and died for my sins, past, present, and future. And it's through Jesus that I know God approves of me. So when God sees me, he doesn't see me for who I am. He sees me for what Jesus did for me. God's for me. Another thing I think she would come away saying is my God... He forgives me. I, I, I want you to see this. I've never even paid attention to this before. But Jesus speaks to this woman. And we're told in the story that after Jesus has done his conversation and she kind of realizes, man, this dude, this dude knows my life and he's definitely offering me something different and he's challenging me and he loves me and he's for me. The Bible says that, that when the disciples come that she leaves her water jar. And I started thinking about this. And this is, this is what I thought. Her water jar represented her commitment to her sin. Because this is the story. It was her responsibility to get her boyfriend water for the day. 
Like the boyfriend's job was to work. It was her job to go get water. So she snuck out of the house, ashamed and isolated, and she has this water thing, and she's filling it up, and she knows if she goes home without the water that she's going to be on her seventh boyfriend. She's living for approval, and she's been disapproved by everybody, and she's just trying to keep this boyfriend happy. And the Bible says that when she meets Jesus, she's no longer living for the approval of men and living under the disapproval of the society in her town, but she leaves her water jar, and she runs back to her town. In other words, I'm letting go of the commitment that I have to my life of sin, and here's what I know about people is when you meet the goodness of God and you understand that God is for you and not against you, that you'll begin to experience his forgiveness, which I would label grace. And grace is the understanding of what you deserve and the truth of what God has given you and the the grace and the mercy and the hope that you receive from him. And, And the challenge is the forgiveness is God's part. The challenge is the repentance is your part. Many of you don't experience God as a mighty God because you refuse to let go of your water jar. This is the woman who comes to to church and she's living with a man that doesn't know Christ and she comes to church and she wants to give everything to Jesus yet she still has to take that water jar home. And God's saying, leave it here. This is the gentleman who wants to give his life to Christ. His marriage is crumbling and his water jar is his computer because he can't stop looking at pornography. And God says, leave that water jar here. If you would just leave it here, you would experience me as a mighty God. And everything you were searching for in that computer is actually found in me. Maybe it's a job you have that causes you to never be able to come to church. And you know it's not your career job. And you know that you just kind of do it because church isn't that important to you. And God is saying, you got to let go of your water jar so that you can fully follow me. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what your water jar is, but I know that forgiveness is God giving us. It's costing him everything. Your only job is just to repent, to let go of the water jar. And when you understand that, you'll begin to see, man, my God forgives. My God forgives me. Number three, I have, I have two more. John, you can come up if you're playing or Lord or whoever it is. Is My God is with me. I think this is maybe uh, the one I like the best. You're going to notice something in this story. She's all alone when she, she leaves. Now, I'm not sure her demeanor when she walked, but I'm just assuming if she's in the life predicament that she is, she's not walking with a lot of courage and a lot of boldness. I think she's a beat puppy. I think she's barely breathing. I think she's doing everything she can to hold on to some fake happiness that she has with the sick man that she's tried to be happy with. And I think she's lonely. I think she's doing whatever it takes to keep this man happy. And she gets to this point, and I can just see her walking up and kind of catching Jesus' eye. Being all sarcastic and all kind of full of questions and kind of standoffish. Which, by the way, if you feel that way about God today, he's totally fine with it. He can handle your criticism, your disbelief. He's real not because you think he's real. And he can handle whatever area of life that you're in. And so she comes and she has loneliness and pain and all this stuff and the bible says she meets jesus and he tells her her past and he tells her what she's going through and all this stuff and she leaves the water jar and the disciples are walking up and in the middle of the disciples walking up she's running back to her town now she just left there kind of in a sneaky way at 12 o'clock she doesn't want to see anybody and all of a sudden she's going back to her city not to her boyfriend there's a difference You don't see the story. Hey, she went back to her boyfriend. Hey, come to church with me. She knows that God's plan for her is much bigger than that broken relationship. And the Bible says that she runs back to her boyfriend. And I think she's convinced 
That if God would meet me at this, this well where I'm alone and isolated, and God would forgive me of what I've done, then God must have a big plan for me, and God is definitely with me. And she runs back. She comes a beat puppy, and she leaves a daughter of God. And she runs back to her town, and the Bible says she begins to tell everybody, come, I think the Messiah is here. He's told me everything about my life, and he still loves me, and he has a purpose and a plan for me, and it's starting right now. I've left alone, and I came back full of God's love. I think he has a purpose and a plan for me. I think one thing I've realized in my life is God always teaches me this lesson when I'm at my lowest. So many times I think we think, if if life's going good, then God must be for me. And if life's going bad, then God must be against me. And if I just get stuff to go better, then my kids would act better. And if I would pray more, my marriage would be better and all stuff. And if, if it's bad right now, if I'm struggling right now, if I'm going through some kind of sickness, then God must be against me. And oftentimes I have that exact same thinking because I'm, I constantly deal with the struggle between approval and disapproval. A few weeks ago I was dealing with this, this the same thinking on a Saturday night. I just was... Not looking forward to Sunday, to say the least. It's not a good thing when your pastor's not looking forward to, to Sunday. Actually, John, me talked. He preached two times when I was in here. He did a wonderful job. It's, it's so nice when you go away to not have to worry about who's preaching and if it's going to be good and all these things. And he asked me when I got back. He said, I never preached two Sundays in a row. He said, do you get excited to preach every week? I said, no. Not at all. Sometimes my weeks are so awful and there seems like there's so much just pushback and so many people are or angry or whatever and there's just a lot of times I'm at Saturday night and I'm thinking God I don't want to preach tomorrow this ain't even going to be good then I got to talk for 30 minutes into a camera with a bunch of other people looking at me judging me hope I don't pass gas burp when I'm up here sometimes it just happens it just and I got this microphone right here I mean all sorts of thoughts and I remember it was a Saturday night and I was in the struggle and God usually comes in the struggle and becomes more evident and I'm getting ready, I'm doing my routine, I, you know, I'm getting fresh to death, ironing my clothes, shaving, I only shave once a week, Saturday, uh, looking at my sermon, I started to get, uh, get ready to look at my sermon, and before I started looking at my sermon, I did something really spiritual, I went on Facebook. So I was kind of putting off my sermon, and I was on Facebook, and I went through, and somebody had posted in my feed a song by the band called Chain and Chain. And the song was called, Though You Slay Me. And I started listening to it. In the middle of it, it had a little monologue from John Piper, a pretty famous older pastor that's kind of went through a lot of stuff. And I listened to it, and, and immediately I, I felt God with me. You ever been there by yourself? And I, and, I, and I got my computer, and I ran downstairs, and Leah said, where are you going? And I'm in the, about to lose it. I'm like, nowhere. Don't follow me. I got to go to the bathroom, right? I just ran down. And I got in my, my downstairs area, the play area, and I just turned on. Uh, this song over and over and over again and it was over and over and over again it was though you slay me i'm still gonna follow you though though my life is tough you're still in control and tears started flowing down my face and i remember thinking god you're with me you're always with me you never leave me never forsake me you're always in control god this is your church and god even when i'm not excited to preach god you're excited to be there and god you're gonna move in a way that i can never dream possible i could preach the best sermon i ever preached in my life tomorrow and jesus if you're not there nothing good happens He's with me. So I, I walked downstairs a beat puppy, and I came back up, and I, I had, I'm pretty sure I had, like, those red puffy eyes, and Lee was like, what's wrong? I was like, nothing. Let's go to bed. I'm ready to get up tomorrow. God is with me. And then the last one I think that is so important is my God can do anything. The Bible says she brings back 
the whole town. And the Bible says many, 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 many people respond to Jesus because of the testimony of the woman at the well. You're broken, good news. Jesus uses broken things. The Bible says that Jesus uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And when you are weak, Jesus becomes strong. So she leaves a beep, or comes a beep puppy. She leaves with the boldness of God, and she comes back. And she's the best evangelist that that little town in Samaria had ever known. And God works in and through her life. And I think she leaves that place, and she, for the rest of her life, is going, I serve a mighty God. My God can, my God will. My God can, my God will. My God can. He, he can save me. And my God will. He will prolong my life. He will be with me for the rest of the steps of my life. My God can. I have to break up with this, this boyfriend because I'm drinking from the toilet right now. My God can. And my God will. My God's going to bring me the right man at the right time and the right hour to fulfill his purpose and his plan. I'm not sure what the, what the situation is, but I know that my God can do anything. Why? Because he's a mighty God. Why? Because I've gotten close enough to know that he is for me. If he wasn't for me, then I would have been abandoned a long time ago. But for some reason, at some point in the history of time, and you were right there, that he met you in that moment specifically as if it was just you and him, and he saved you. And if he didn't have a purpose and a plan for the rest of your life, he would have stopped your heart so that you would stop sucking purposeful and useful air and take you to heaven where you could be with him in eternity. But he's kept your heart beating because he has a purpose and plan for your life. My God forgives. I live for his from his approval, not for his approval. My God can, my God can't, will, my God is with me. My God's a mighty God. Would you stand up with me all over this house and at both of our other campuses? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we go into a holy moment, church? This is the precipice or the, the end of our service, the most important part. As Pastor Jordan is in Plymouth meeting and Pastor Tyler is at Limerick campus and we're joined through video and the power of technology as one church at three different locations. Maybe you're watching online. We serve a mighty God. He doesn't label himself that. He's not a self-proclaimed savior. No, this is what happens when you get close to him. When you get close to him, you begin to understand. He's the wonderful counselor. When you get close to him, you begin to understand. You begin to understand he's a mighty God. He's fighting for you. Nothing is outlasting him. Nothing is over his head. Nothing is too powerful from him. You're going through marriage problems. You have a health report that's bad. You have financial problems that you can trust him. Why? Because he's a mighty God. And the closer that you get to him, the more you'll begin to understand that, church. He's fighting for you. He's never stopped. Some of you, you, you've walked away from Christ. Maybe you knew him as a child. Your parents had faith and they prayed over you and you walked away and you've been angry and bitter with him. Maybe your experience hasn't been fulfilling. Here's the truth. God is still fighting for you. He's fighting for you right up to this moment right here, church. He's never stopped. He's been for you since you were born. Though you may have felt like he was far from you, though you may have felt abandoned, though you may have felt broken, that God has been for you. He is always for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has never turned his back on you. Even in your most painful situation, God was there with you, and he wants to use that for his glory to accomplish great things far, far greater than anything you could ever dream possible. He's fighting for you right now. And just like that woman came, she came shamed. She 
came alone, she came broken. She met Jesus. It seemed like a weird time to meet Jesus, but Jesus has set the whole thing up. Some of you saying, it seems like a weird time in my life to meet Jesus. Maybe I'm on top of the world or maybe I'm broken, but it seems like a weird time for Jesus to set this up. And Jesus in your life has brought you to this moment through everything that's going on so that he could speak to your heart and he could change your forever. He loves you so much, so much. I know he loves you because he was willing to die for you. Long before you ever thought of him, he was dying for you. 2,000 years ago, he was put on a cross and he hung for your sins, innocent of sin, for your sins in your place. And he died the death that you should have died. Then he was put into a tomb and the Bible says on the third day that he rose from the dead. Some of you would probably say as you're with your, with your eyes closed, how do you know that's real? How can you prove that's real? Can't that just be a made up story? And I always say this, a few days before, all of his friends, his disciples, they left him. They abandoned him. They ran from him. They thought it was over. Jesus was put into a tomb and on the third day he rose from the dead and all of a sudden this, this rumor started going around. Jesus was gone. The Romans couldn't find him. The Pharisees were freaking out and the disciples thought it wasn't real. And then Jesus showed up in their midst. And he said, look at my hands and look at my feet. I did this for you so that you don't have to be a product of what's been said to you, what's been done to you, so that your life can end differently, so that your eternity can be secured. And you say, how do you know that that's true? Here's how I know that's true. Because the same men that abandoned Jesus would then wait in the upper room some weeks later and the Holy Spirit would descend on them. And these same men and women that abandoned Jesus would see him risen from the dead and ascend to heaven and the Holy Spirit would come on them and they would be part of a movement where they would pass this story, the story of life and grace and mercy from generation to generation. And the same men that abandoned him would then be willing to die for him. And I know that because history proves true that each one of them would later go on to die or be exiled for the truth of Christ, the gospel. He loves you. He did everything to get you to this point. And the Bible says that if you would just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you would let go of that pot, whatever that is, whatever's holding you back, whatever thing that is keeping you tied to your life of sin, and you would follow him, that he would save you, that he would direct you, that he would give you a reason to wake up. Some of you have never had a reason to wake up before. Tomorrow will be a day of purpose and hope and peace and comfort and love. You will have a love that you have never experienced before. He's here for you right now. That's the only reason I stand up here, friend. That's it. Jesus changed me, and I know who I would have been without him. And I recognize who I am because of him. And because of that, because I realize what he's done in me, I just want every person on this earth that I come in contact with to know that God has a purpose and a plan, that he died for them, that he sent his son, that that's what Christmas is about, that he's a mighty God. If you don't have a relationship with him, this is how we end every one of our services. This is your home. You are supposed to be here right now. I don't care what you believe, and I don't care what you brought into this place. You know God is knocking at the door of your heart right now. You can feel it burning inside of your chest. He's knocking. Are you going to open the door to let him in? Jesus, be the Lord of my life. If that's you in this place, church, just knowing who you are and believing who Jesus is at Limerick and Plymouth meeting, if that's you, would you just respond by shooting your your hand up in the air right now? 
Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Right now, all over this house, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I'm going to join with the hundreds of people that have already made this decision. Jesus, be the Lord of my life at our Limerick Plymouth meeting campus. Right now, you just shoot your arm up in the air so Jordan and Tyler can see you. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. You're a mighty God. You're a mighty God. I want to be close to you. I want to know you. If you're watching online right now, I don't know you by name, but Jesus does. And right now in your living room, wherever you're watching, and if you're catching up during the week, you just begin to pray, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I'm responding to you, Jesus. I hear you knocking at the door of my heart. I'm going to give you one more second in this house. Jesus, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you. You're for me, not against me. Church, would you pray as one church with three campuses right now for those watching online? For those, this message is going to be shared with Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. It never returns void. We thank you for the story we heard first service about the young man that you reached out to, that you've been knocking at his, his heart, Lord, and you changed him. Lord, he's come into your presence, and his life is changed. He talked about the purpose and the hope and just the love that he's felt, Lord. Lord, it's changed his outlook on life. All his pain up to this point has a new pers- perspective, Lord. Lord, I thank you for those that are responding right now, both of our campuses. Lord, the prayer is simple. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to let go of everything in my past, and I'm going to look to my future, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you died for my sins in my place, that the death you died should have been the way that my life ended. But now that I know you, I have hope, hope for this life and hope for eternity, Jesus. We love you so much. I thank you for the hope, the grace, the mercy and the purpose that you're giving people right now. I thank you for those that know you in these rooms right now, that you're kind of reinvigorating, redoing something in their life, lighting that fire that maybe they once had to go reach this world with your love, Lord. Lord, we know that we go out into this world to make a difference. You have a light that you've given us, Lord, and we're not called to hide it. So I thank you that you're going to allow us to be the hands and feet, to love the way you love, to see people the way you see them, Lord. I thank you that the Holy Spirit, you're going to be with us to give us the right words to pray, the right prayers, the right mindset, and the right actions, Jesus. I love you, and I thank you for this day. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you continue to do. We know this is your house, and nothing good happens in this place without you. So we thank you for being here. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, at all three locations, would you clap with me?